0: This is audio lecture for Module 3, let's get right into it. Chapter 2, Section 3, Kingdom of the Nile. The early formation of Egypt was really centered around one really important geographical feature, the Nile River. Ancient Greek historian Herodotus even once remarked that Egypt is wholly the gift of the Nile. In other words, Egypt wouldn't be really much of anything had it not been for this wonderful water source that contributes to trade, transportation, cultural uh, diffusion, and of course, uh, life itself. So, we have to understand as historians that the Nile River is one of the biggest reasons for the proliferation of this particular civilization. Villages, like many other river civilizations, are going to form along this river, and there's going to be two types of land that uh, the Egyptians are going to identify. It's going to be black land and red land. Black land is going to be the land uh, that looks a little bit darker, and it's because of the moisture and silt uh, from the river that is going to spill over it. So during the flooding season, you're going to have land that's a little bit darker or or contain more moisture and water. And because of this, black land is going to have a lot of significance for the early Egyptians. They're going to use it for farming. They're going to use it uh, for for crop rotations, and they're going to use it for their livestock. Now, red land, in contrast, is going to be the term used to describe the desert surrounded uh, the the moisturized land around the Nile River. So think of it like a jawbreaker. You have the Nile River, which is at its center of the society. Then you have black land that surrounds the Nile River along both sides uh, within a 10-mile radius or so. And then beyond that, you have red land or desert land. And because of this, you're going to have initially a very insulated or isolated society as a result of the geography. Now, let's talk about the Nile River a little bit. It is going to flow actually, believe it or not, from the south to the north. If you look at a map, there's a very good tendency to believe, most people think, that the Mediterranean Ocean or the sea is the one that provides its energy source. But really, the the river flows from the highlands of Ethiopia and the lakes of Central Africa from the south. So you can think of the river flowing from, uh, uh, from the bottom to the top, and that is going to obviously have an impact on Egyptian society. The river is going to be more predictable than the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, as previously discussed with the Babylonians or in the other Mesopotamian societies. And a lot of Egyptians are going to wait for the animal flood. Remember, the annual flood contributes to that black land that we talked about. It's going to store excess water in reservoirs to prepare for the dry season, something that the Egyptians are going to learn how to do in order to kind of maintain crops during a drought or some dry season. Now, the two regions of Egypt are going to be based along this river that flows again from the south to the north. You have Upper Egypt, which is in the south, and the reason why they call it Upper Egypt is because of the topography. It is literally uh, elevated uh, compared to the one in Lower Egypt. It's going to be formed around the first cataract or waterfall within 100 miles of the Mediterranean Sea. Lower Egypt, by contrast, will be in the north and will form around the delta or the opening of a river on the Nile that pours into the Mediterranean Sea. So it's kind of in reverse. It's a little bit confusing, but just kind of get the understanding that the waterfalls create. The energy source that flows from the south to the north and it kind of pours out into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Around 3100 BC, there's going to be a warrior chief known as King Menes, and he's going to unite the two regions together in a string of villages along the Nile River. He's going to found the first capital of Egypt at a place called Memphis, and the Nile will be used as a highway linking these two regions together. Egypt, with the help of the Nile, will become one of the world's first unified states. So this is why we discussed this, and this is why geography plays an important role in the development of this civilization. Now, historians divide the um, the trajectory or the success of the society in three phases. You have Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, and New Kingdom. Old Kingdom lasts about 2500 BC to 2100 BC. Pharaohs, during this time, are going to organize a strong centralized government. They're going to hold absolute power, and they're going to play key roles in both government and religion. I've noted to you before that there's an association between religion and government. Not necessarily uh, they're the same, but they both kind of have the same intended effect to kind of control people, rules and norms of behavior, and uh, the more um, primitive you get into history, the more they're going to be aligned, or in many cases, one in the same. Remember, pharaohs are going to be seen as divine-like, or demigod, or gods themselves. So this is why I wanted to keep on reminding you that religion and government uh, have an interesting relationship with one another, and it will evolve as we go on later throughout history. Okay, so we have at the top of the social hierarchy the pharaoh, but of course like many large societies it's too big to govern. So, like the Babylonians and the Persians and the other Mesopotamian civilizations, the pharaohs are going to rule by a system known as bureaucracy, which of course is divided power uh, among other lesser um, you know, leadership and uh, even divided by uh, things like departments. Pharaohs are going to depend upon an advisor known as a vizier to help manage the state. Uh, You could think of them as advisors. That's a good way of thinking about them. Under the Vizier, there are several departments in charge of various tasks, such as tax collecting, updating inventory. That's basically collecting and counting the amount of products you have for the event of storage and later use and consumption. Farming and and engineering, um, as long as and as well as specifically developing irrigation techniques to help feed a growing robust population. Thousands of scribes or writers are going to carry out the vizier's instructions within each department, and then from there, it will kind of flow down to the laborer class. In fact, there's going to be one vizier, uh, known as Tahotep, who's going to write a manual on how to be a competent vizier, and this will serve as the basis for other people or other leaders who want to kind of carry out bureaucratical tasks. Uh, This is something that you should keep in mind as we study other civilizations. Now, other things that are going to be uh, on the top agenda, other than developing irrigation techniques for the Egyptians, is creating the pyramids for their pharaohs and other nobles during this time. What were the pur- what was the purpose of the pyramids at Giza? It was basically to, to create a necropolis, or in Greek or in English, it is a cemetery. So this these structures were mainly designed to house the dead pharaohs and allow them to kind of have a comfortable living space until they are resurrected again. Usually, pharaohs are going to not only be buried with their belongings and their objects, but also, in many cases, their slaves and their servants as well, because there was a strong concept in the afterlife that once you kind of entomb these figures, they are going to be able to have a safe passage, safe and comfortable passage to the afterlife. So, this is why we have these uh, structures that we now can enjoy and see for ourselves. Um, after that the middle the second phase in the Egyptians development is known as the Middle Kingdom, which is roughly around 1900s to 1600 BC. This period in contrast to the Old Kingdom is pretty turbulent because there's a lot of political corruption. There's going to be a lot of rebellions. Um, There's going to be a series of droughts. The river is not flowing as consistently um, as it was in the old kingdom. And as a result, uh, the middle kingdom is going to be a little bit more capricious uh, than the old kingdom. Uh, There's going to be a lot of other things that occur during this time. There's going to be further centralization of of the state. There's going to be uh, the occupation of a region known as Nubia, which is going to be perfect for resources and trade. There's going to be new trading opportunities with other peoples, especially the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians uh, during this time. In 1700 B.C., There's going to be, however, foreign invaders called the Hyksos, and they're going to occupy the delta region, or the opening, the the upper part, uh, excuse me, the uh, lower part of the Egyptian uh, civilization. And the reason why I'm mentioning these particular peoples is because this is where cultural diffusion takes place. The Egyptians are going to learn the merits of the the horse-drawn war chariot by uh, the Hyksos, and in turn, the Hyksos are going to develop... um, and, and, and also embody and co-opt a lot of the Egyptian Achievements uh, such as their uh, language, such as their forms of religious uh, life and duty, and of course their bureaucratical system of law. Um, now we f- spill into the last phase, which is the New Kingdom, from the 1500s to the 1000s BC. You can also think of this as the golden age of uh, the this particular society. We're going to talk about what golden ages mean later on in other lectures, but just keep that in mind. This is the period where territorial conquest is going to reign supreme for the Egyptians. There's going to be a lot of and stronger pharaohs. At some point, the Hyksos are going to be kicked out of power. The Egyptians are going to reclaim their authority in the region. And there's going to be a lot of these people that are going to stretch the Egyptian influence throughout the uh, the Middle East, in parts of Asia, and actually along the North African coastline. We have the first female ruler to take charge, and her name was Hatshepsut, And she exercised all the rights of the pharaoh. Between 1472 and 1458 BC, she's going to encourage trade with eastern Mediterranean lands and along the red coast of Africa. Her stepson, in turn known as Thutmose, will take over as pharaoh once he reached adulthood, and he's going to be a great military general that is going to stretch the Egyptians' borders to the greatest extent ever. So we have a lot of competent pharaohs during this time, and then eventually we get into another ruler known as Ramses the Second, much later, and he's going to become the new kingdom, the new pharaoh of the kingdom. He's going to rule for 66 years from 1200, roughly, 1270 to 12 12- 13 BC, and during that time, he's going to push Egyptian control northward again as far back as Syria. He may be known as the best of the Egyptian rulers, and he's going to boast his conquests uh, throughout the proliferation of numerous temples and monuments. However, it is worthy to note that he's going to be more known for his strong sense of leadership and not so much for his military conquests. Another group of peoples that the Egyptians are going to interact with during this phase in their development are a group of people known as the Nubians. And the Egyptians are going to quickly conquer these people and their respective region known as Nubia. And they're going to get a tremendous amount of resources such as ivory, cattle, gold, and as well as Nubian slaves. In return, Nubians are going to adopt Egyptian uh, uh, principles and culture Uh, This term of adoption is also known as assimilation. So as we go on, you're going to have to hear that word a lot. At some point, like all other empires, the Egyptian empire will soon decline. After 1100 BC, Egyptian power will slowly be replaced by the Assyrians and the Persians. Later, in 332 BC, the Egyptian dynasty will end as the Greeks will take control. And again, by 30 BC, Romans will replace replace Greek hegemony as the new conquerors during this era. But the Egyptian impact on the rest of the world has still been identified and we will learn more about their achievements in the next section. Chapter 2, Section 4, Egyptian Civilization. Before we talk about Egyptian achievements, it's really important to talk about their belief systems. Why? Because belief systems are the primary motivators for people to do things. And what's interesting about Egyptian religion is that it kind of evolves throughout each phase in their development. In the Old Kingdom, a lot of the Egyptians are going to worship the sun god known as Ray. In the Middle Kingdom, they're going to associate Re with another god, Anon. Eventually, they're going to call their chief god amun Re And it's going to be believed that the pharaohs will receive their right to rule from this god. So, like many civilizations, religions are going to evolve based on the interests, the fears, the hopes of the people believing in them. More relatable gods, however, are going to become more popular within the Egyptian religion. There's going to be two that kind of become... Uh, the most important, and it's based on the myth or the tragedy of Osiris. Osiris is going to be a male god that was destined to rule all over Egypt. However, his brother Set, S-E-T, jealous of this power, is going to commit fratricide or brotherly murder to his brother, and he's going to chop him in little pieces and scatter him throughout the region of Egypt. Eventually, Osiris will be saved by his wife ISIS, who will reanimate him and put him together as pieces. However, because Osiris is dead, Osiris is no longer going to be ruler of Egypt, but he will become now known as the ruler of the underworld. He's going to be the god of death as well, interestingly enough, the Nile. So it's really interesting to note that the Egyptians' most popular god, or one of their most popular gods, is the god of death as well as the god of the Nile. This indicates a value that is placed on this geographical feature. What is interesting about Isis is that it's going to also show that women have a place in society. Many, according to legend, believed that Isis was the first goddess to teach women to grind corn spin flax, weave cloth, and care for children. And like Osiris, Isis, in a way, will promise the faithful that they have some sort of future in the afterlife. So this is very important to understand. As human become, the human beings become more developed and more complex, their gods are going to become more complex as well something just to kind of keep in mind. What is very also interesting however is not all rulers are going to subscribe to the belief system of everyone. And many rulers that who believe that they have some sort of divine right are going to try to change these belief systems and in some cases it's going to be successful, in other cases it's not. This is a case where it's not going to be very successful. In 1380 BC, a pharaoh known as uh, Amenhotep IV is going to challenge the powerful priest class of Amun-Re. He's going to insist on having the people of Egypt abandon all their gods and only worship Anton, a minor god that he personally likes. Amenhotep will take the name of Akhenaten as a sign of his allegiance to Aton. That word translates literally to he who serves Aton. What is interesting is that the priests and the nobles are going to resist these revolutionary changes. Why? Well, it's not only going to challenge and threaten their power over other people, but it's also going to be a way of defending the empire. Religion provides a sense of social cohesion. Think of religion or belief systems as not only a way to motivate people to do things, but it also is kind of like the glue that keeps people together. Leaders that suggest different types of glue will pose as a threat to the established order. And as a result, there's going to be a rejection of that. Uh, other major characteristics of Egyptian religion is a strong belief in the afterlife. Again, proving oneself to Osiris is the key to having a uh, successful future in the afterlife. That is why there's going to be uh, the the development of pyramids that we've mentioned in the previous lecture. A lot of the Egyptians are going to believe that the afterlife would be very much like the life on Earth and like the ancient Persians that we previously discussed in the uh, other lectures. They're also going to have a concept of judgment when you die. Um, They have this thing where Osiris will have some sort of scale and there would balance your heart against a feather. And if it was of equal weight, you were going to have a very successful future in the afterlife. If it was heavier than the feathers, you are going to be destined for some sort of punishment. So we're beginning to see a concept known as judgment. There's some sort of law that is going to be enforced even after after our uh, mortal lives here on Earth. Um, To guide people through this process is going to be... A lot of priests and and with a collection of rules and regulations, there's going to be a book known as the Book of the Dead. So we even have evidence of a society that is really, really, really interested in making sure that their their rights and their and their their futures are protected um, in the afterlife Um, to kind of navigate. In the afterlife, a soul needs a body, according to ancient Egyptians, and that is why mummification becomes such a ritualized and sanctified and important practice. A a human soul needs a human body, and you need to preserve your body so that you can use that body in the afterlife. So a lot of priests are going to make their livings um, of of doing uh, intense preservation of dead bodies by embalming them or pumping them full of chemicals and wrapping them in cloth. Now, what is interesting about this process, although there is a basis of religious uh, of religious need for it, it's also going to lend itself to scientific inquiry and study. So, you know, religion, as I mentioned before, is an earlier form of science. These, th- This ritual is going to lend itself to of the discovery of anatomy of the body parts of organs, as well as chemistry, uh, mixing up the chemicals needed for embalmment, as well as surgery, slicing up people to make them better. So we'll talk about that later on throughout this lecture. The Egyptian social structure is going to be very typical of other river civilizations, such as the Mesopotamians, as mentioned in previous lectures. You're going to have the pharaoh, followed by officials, high priests, and priestesses. That's the priest class, followed by merchants, scribes, and artisans. These are people that are in the economic sphere. And lastly, peasants and slaves. Uh, There will be some changes in the social structure. Social Social classes will become more fluid as trade and warfare will increase, as well as the population increase. You're going to have to allow some people to um, to move up the social ladder. Why? If you have everyone super rigid, you're going to have people that are upset, and people that are upset are going to unify and rebel. So keep that as a basic formula for all societies. Women are going to enjoy some of the greatest rights in Egyptian civilization. The foot of an Egyptian woman may walk where it pleases her, and no one may deny her. That is a quote from Ramses II. That is the pharaoh himself talking about what women may have made not do. Women could inherit property during this time. They can enter business deals. They can buy and sell goods and obtain a divorce. Women could also manufacture perfume and textiles, manage farming estates, and serve as doctors or even priest tests. Few women learned how to read and write, however, and all were excluded from becoming scribes or holding government jobs. So uh, although there, there were some women that are going to maintain literacy, they're going to be in the upper classes and Even those women are going to have very, 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 very specific limitations on what they can and cannot do. But we have to acknowledge that they, like uh, the Babylonians and the Persians, are going to allow women some rights. Hardly the rights that we see in the modern day today, but rights nevertheless. The Egyptian achievements are going to be far-reaching. The forms of writing, as uh, in contrast to cuneiform by the Sumerians, they're going to develop a series of scripts and symbols known as hieroglyphics that's going to help them with not only their uh, ritual practices of mummification, and inscribing, but it's also going to be used for contracts and business and trade and whatnot. They're also going to use um, a new form of writing, uh, uh, known as papyrus, which is an early primitive form of paper. Unlike the tablets that are going to be chiseled in ancient Sumeria, papyrus will be made from a plant, and the Egyptians are going to make very good use of it. In the 1800s, a recent development, Jean chapeau will decipher the meaning of the hieroglyphics written by cross-analyzing them with another artifact known as the Rosetta Stone, and it's going to give some insight into Egyptian uh, civilization. This is where we get most of our findings. There's going to be further science uh, and mathematical discoveries under the Egyptians. Mummification, as I said before, will lead to advancements in science. Surgical practices will become something that the Egyptians will develop, Uh, a use of a or castor beams and saffron will be used uh, again for preserving bodies they're going to develop a calendar that will include 12 months of 30 days which is modeled roughly based on our modern calendar as well as 5 days will be added at the end of each year this will be a precursor to the modern day calendar um, and the reason why calendars are going to be developed is to kind of keep track on the flooding that the Nile will give for farmers so the, eco- the economics Is going to be the one that pushes for the development of the calendar. The Nile will promote math and geometry. In order to develop irrigation or dikes and canals, you have to have a good sense of space and time, and geometry is the subject for that. The Egyptians are also going to make advancements in art. They're going to express their pharaohs and nobles larger than they actually were through statues and, of course, murals in the tombs of the pyramids. Egyptian artists will often blend human and animal features on their subjects to figuratively express their importance in society. So there's going to be a lot of interesting art that's going to be expressed in the later phase of Egyptian society. Chapter 2, Section 5, Roots of Judaism The present-day nation of Israel lies at the far western end of the Fertile Crescent on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. About 4,000 years ago, the ancient Israelites developed the religion of Judaism, which became a defining feature of their culture. Today, Judaism is one of the world's major faiths. The belief of the ancient Israelites, also called the Hebrews, differed in basic ways from those of nearby peoples. The Israelites were monotheistic, believing that there was only one god. At the time, all other peoples worshipped many gods. A few religious leaders, such as the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaton, as mentioned before, spoke of a single powerful god. However, such ideas did not have the lasting impact that Israelites' beliefs did. The Israelites believed in an all-knowing, all-powerful God who was present everywhere. In their views, history and faith were interconnected. Each event reflected God's plan for the people of Israel. And as a result, they recorded events and laws in the Torah, their most sacred text. The Torah includes the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. That is, the book of Genesis... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Hebrew Bible includes a total of 24 books. Additional laws and customs written down much later make up another important text, the Talmud. According to the Torah, a man named Abraham lived near Ur in Mesopotamia. About 2000 BC, he and his family migrated, herding their sheep and goats into a region called Cana. Abraham is considered the father of the Israelite people. The Israelites believed that God had made the following covenant, or promise an agreement with Abraham. Quote, You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make nations of you and kings shall come forth from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, short stay, all the land of Canaan, end quote. Genesis chapter 17, verses four to eight. God's covenant with Abraham included two declarations that became the basis of two key beliefs of Judaism. First, God declared that he would have a special relationship with Abraham and his descendants. The Israelites believed that God had chosen them to fulfill certain obligations and duties in the world. Second, God declared that Canaan would one day belong to the Israelites. As a result, the Israelites viewed Canaan as their, quote, promised land. An Israelite named Moses later renewed God's covenant with the Israelites. Genesis tells that a famine forced many Israelites to migrate to Egypt. There, they were eventually enslaved. In the book of Exodus, Moses tells the Israelites that in return for their faithful obedience to God, God will lead them out of bondage and into the promised land. In time, Moses led the Israelites in their exodus or departure from Egypt. After 40 years, they reached Canaan although Moses died just before they arrived. By 1000 BC, the Israelites had set up the Kingdom of Israel. The Torah tells of 12 separate tribes of Israel that had feuded up until this time. Then David, the strong and second wise king of Israel, united these tribes into a single nation. According to the Torah, David's son Solomon followed him as king. Solomon undertook the task of turning the city of Jerusalem into an impressive capital. Jerusalem was praised for its splendid temple dedicated to God, which David had begun construction, and Solomon completed. Solomon also won fame for his wisdom and understanding. Additionally, he tried to increase Israel's influence around the region by negotiating with the powerful empires in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Solomon's building projects required such high taxes and so much forced labor that revolts erupted after he died in 922 B.C. The kingdom then split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The Israelites remained independent for 200 years, but eventually fell to more powerful peoples. In 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered Israel. In 586 BC, the Babylonian armies captured Judah. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Great Temple and forced many of those he defeated into exile in Babylon. This period of exile, called the Babylonian Captivity, lasted about 50 years. In 539 BC, the Persian ruler Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon and soon freed the Israelites. Since most of them had come from the Kingdom of Judah, they became known as Jews. Many Jews returned to Judah where they rebuilt a smaller version of Solomon's Temple. However, like other groups in the region, they lived under Persian rule. From earlier times, the concept of law was central to the Israelites. The Torah included many laws and is thus often referred to as the Book of the Law. Some of the laws deal with everyday matters, such as cleanliness and food preparation. Others define criminal acts. The Torah also established moral principles. Israelite society, like many others, was patriarchal, which means that men held the greatest legal and moral authority. A family's oldest male relative was the head of the household and arranged marriages for his daughters. Women had few legal rights than men. Still, in early times, a few outstanding women, such as the Judge Deborah, won great honor. The Ten Commandments at the heart of Judaism are the Ten Commandments, a set of laws that Jews believed God gave them to, through Moses. The first four commandments stress religious duties towards God, such as keeping the Sabbath or a holy day for rest and worship. The rest addressed conduct towards others. They include honor your father, you shall not murder, and you shall not steal. They also have developed an ethical worldview. Often in Jewish history, spiritual leaders emerged to interpret God's will. These prophets, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, reminded the Jewish people of their duties. The prophets also taught a strong code of ethics, or moral standards of behavior. They urged both personal morality and social justice, calling on the rich and powerful to protect the poor and weak. All people, they said, were equal before God. Unlike many ancient societies in which the ruler was seen as a god, Jews saw their leaders as fully human and bound to obey God's law. For a 500 period that began with the Babylonian captivity, many Jews left Judah and moved to different parts of the world. This spreading out of the Jewish people was called the Diaspora. Some Jews were exiled, others moved to farther reaches of the empires that controlled their land, and yet others moved because of discontent with political rulers. Wherever Jews settled, many maintained their identity as a people by living in close-knit communities and obeying their religious laws and traditions. These traditions helped them survive centuries of persecution or unfair treatment inflicted on a particular group of people, which you will read about later. Today, Judaism is considered a major world religion for its unique contribution to religious thought. It influenced both Christianity and Islam, two other monotheistic faiths that also arose in the Middle East. Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike honor Abraham, Moses, and the prophets, and they all teach the ethical worldview developed by the Israelites. In the West, their shared heritage of Jews and Christians is known as the Judeo-Christian tradition.